This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for this Friday, April 21st. The forecast for today, sunny this morning and a mixture of sun and cloud as we move toward the possibility of a shower this afternoon, the high 20 degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, the Leafs stage a dramatic comeback. Number two, a movie-worthy heist is pulled at Pearson. Number three, the government's on the hook for billions with that Volkswagen deal. Number four, an ousted liberal MP files a lawsuit. And number five, welcome to the world without blue check marks. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Toronto Maple Leafs fans are somewhat salved by the fact that the Leafs came roaring back last night. So as lopsided as everything was in game one, we ended up with a bit of a lopsided verdict last night. 7-2 victory in game two. I have no special analysis. I was not watching the game, so. Winning better than losing. Winning better than losing, uh, yes. And they looked like they were playing last night. Going like they looked like they were there. would be really nice. Yes. First time since 2004. Uh, after go. the first goal, you could feel everyone getting back on the bandwagon. It was good yes. times. Yeah. Okay. And were people actually uh, in their seats and watching the game, or were they off in the, the you know, luxury suites? Oh, it, no. In a playoff game, people are there watching the game. Oh, okay. Waving their towels, yelling. There was some there was some rude chanting going on later in the game. I saw Dartman on CP24 yesterday, so apparently he's still part of the mix. But, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, not— Aren't you going to do the thing? What? I mean, the Leafs have evened up the, the yes. series, so, so aren't you going to— So sweet, 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 sweet Friday? Well, you tell me. You have to declare it. No, no, it is because I don't think there's been an overnight terrorist incident or anything. So. Even if there has, the Leafs won. It's a yeah. sweet, sweet Friday! There you go. Sweet, sweet Friday. Uh, here's John Tavares talking about winning in Game 2. Nice job by our group uh, tonight, uh, coming out of the gates really well. I thought the, the first goal, drawing a penalty early, executing and— Getting on board just really got uh, uh, really got us going and kept uh, the life in the building. Uh, fans were incredible tonight. So, and he uh, got a hat trick. Yeah, that yeah, I know. That's three goals. Do you know the origin of the hat trick? No, no. Right. Am I supposed? I'm, I'm filling in for Nick, so I guess I should have that useless information yes. at hand, but I don't. <laughs> the hat trick was actually created by a guy in the East End of Montreal. He had a hat store on St. Catherine Street. And he would offer a free hat back in the day when everybody wore hats to any member of the Montreal Canadiens who scored three goals in one uh, game. And that is, you know, something crazy small that started in Montreal as one guy just trying to promote his hat business became an expression in in hockey in general that if you scored three goals in a game, you would have a hat trick. So I don't know if John Tavares is necessarily going to report to St. Catherine Street East to collect his uh, fedora. He probably has people for that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, all is right with the world because the uh, Maple Leafs won last night. Um, This is quite an extraordinary affair where uh, $20 million in gold and other high-valued goods were heisted at Pearson Airport. People, you know, not that anybody wants to encourage crime, but people are always going to be kind of excited about a heist. Well, Um, especially since nobody got hurt. 
right? right. Like it's 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 a caper. It nobody a got caper. hurt, so it's like uh, you, you, you kind of. You, I'm with you though. You don't want to admire it because then you feel like you're endorsing it. Yeah. But there's something about how did you do this? Yeah. Well, a friend of mine from many many years ago, a stand-up comedian, John Rogers, became a show producer and. He did a show that I think went for like six seasons and every single episode is a heist or a caper or some form of a, you know, a fraud operation. And he got to the point where he was going through, um, you know, documents of how to pull off uh, a fraud or whatever you want to call it from like the 1600s. He got to the point where it was like, okay, how do we invent something new here? Uh, but in this case, anyway, uh, over $20 million in gold and, quote, high-value goods. So have, it could be like lettuce <laughs> with inflation, right? Yeah, definitely. Anyway, uh, Mark Mendelson was on with Jim Richards last night to talk about this. The police are going to work on the premise. Somebody knew what was on that plane. They knew when that plane was arriving at Pearson. They had a heads up as to what terminal in terms of the storage facilities it was going to be going to. And you could, you're, we're probably going to find out at the end of the day that they had a lot of inside help in terms of getting this product off the property. But the good thing is, as I, as I mentioned, there's lots of cameras, there's lots of control, and it's kind of hard to move 3,200 pounds worth of gold. You just can't walk into your normal gold exchange on Young Street and trade it in for cash. It's not going to work that way. So, so this is all the hallmarks of, of organized crime and all obviously well executed, but certainly without, this could not be done without the assistance of people inside. Okay. So I'm already imagining like people going to see Russell Oliver. And, you know, normally it's like, here's a Rolex that I, I need to sell, or here's some gold teeth, whatever. Yeah, my, my grandmother left me 3,200 pounds worth of gold. Here are 40 bricks of gold. What do you think? Um, to move from that to this story is uh, a little awkward, I guess, that because uh, there's nothing funny about it. A uh, 12-year-old boy charged with two counts of sexual assault in connection with several incidents on walking trails in Toronto's East End. I really find myself, though, wondering, like, what is the story here? How do you have a 12-year-old boy assaulting women in their 50s in Toronto ravines? And, um, you know, and then I also find myself wondering, like, what is it like to be the parent to a 12-year-old where it's like, okay... You know, it's one thing to have your 12-year-old and they shoplifted. And so now we're going to go back to the store and we're going to apologize. and We're going to try and remediate this behavior. It's another to have a 12-year-old boy who's accused of multiple sexual assaults. And the thing is, some of these started when he was 11, which predates where he could even be held somewhat accountable. But at 12, what do you do? You know, I mean, how do you process this? through the court system? How do you process, how do you try to figure out what is wrong with this kid? And how do things go that wrong by 11? I know, yeah, it's, I mean, and like I said, there's nothing funny about this, so we'll, we'll keep moving. And okay, Robert Turner. Hi, um, it is me even though I don't have a blue check mark. Yeah, well, none of us have a blue check mark anymore. I never had one. I didn't either. No. 
Um, it, which is kind of funny, actually, because I had a lot of people saying, how could you not have a check mark?" It's because, you know what? I went online and I started filling out the box of how to get a check mark, and I got bored and I just stopped because I don't care. If somebody wants to impersonate me on Twitter, I'm fine. Uh, but yeah, as of today, nobody has a check mark, including the Pope, I might add. So, you know, govern yourselves accordingly. The alleged Pope on Twitter. The alleged Pope. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. So, uh, let's see. Maple Leafs win. That's good. Uh, heist at uh, Pearson Airport. And I guess we, we have to be somewhat measured in how we cover this. Uh, you know, as Robert Turner and I were just saying, um, there is a forever romance when it comes to people pulling off heists. And I guess as long as nobody dies or gets injured, then you know, a heist is always going to be somewhat compelling. But at the same time, you know, somebody did steal somebody else's stuff. Uh, then we get to um, a story where, and this has always been kind of difficult for us to cover uh, here at News Talk 1010 because it's our company. But when it comes to the availability of cell phone service on the transit system in Toronto, um, this is going to forever be an important story for Torontonians and yet also for us, obviously, since, you know, we're Bell Media, it's, uh, it's a bit of a problem. But all I can tell you is that the agency, I'm going to just read from the copy here, that operates Toronto subway system has rejected a proposal by Bell Canada to revamp its wireless cell service model. And if I understand the story correctly, and I'm sure the C-suite will explain it to me in greater detail if I get it wrong. But I think this is all about the fact that there is a company that used to control all cell phone service in the Toronto transit system in the tunnels. And the idea was that all the major cell phone providers were going to have to negotiate with that service and pay them in order to have access. So it really does come down to whether or not the major cell phone providers are willing to pay a certain fee. And at the moment, it seems that Bell is buckling uh, at the uh, fee that is being proposed by Rogers. And, you know, an interesting aspect in all of this is Bell and Rogers do a lot of business together. You know, we do a lot of sports stuff together, for example. Well, all the big companies are working together on the Ontario lines cell phone service, aren't they? Like, that's a different contract from my understanding. Yeah. I mean, and, and it gets really complicated, frankly, because I know a couple of people in the biz um, where, you know, that we had established, for example, that uh, certain people had created cell phone service. Um, and then you get into what is called the last mile, which is the, the last link to your house if you're still doing the landline and stuff like that. And then people piggyback on that and they pay a certain amount of money, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to get too complicated in this because, frankly, it's way beyond my pay grade. But apparently Bell didn't like the offer that they got from Rogers in order to piggyback on the service and provide cell service in uh, tunnels. So I think, I think that's the full story. Um, okay, then we get to uh, MP Handong is suing Global News for defamation. Now, this is one of those stories where if you're heavily invested in 
uh, Canadian politics, you know all of the details. And if you're not, you're like, who, what? Okay, so there was a story about how Handong had been talking to the Consul General for China in Toronto, and he is alleged to have said, keep the two Michaels behind bars for now, because if you release them, it, it'll be good for the Conservatives, which is the dumbest thing ever, because how could it have ever been good for the Conservatives if the two Michaels had been liberated at that particular juncture? Um, and here's the important aspect in this. There is a principle in journalism called matching, which is that somebody gets a scoop because they got some sources. And then you have to figure out through your own sources whether or not that story is true and try to match it. Nobody has matched this story. So Handong may have a very good case against Global News. It's a sweet, sweet Friday! It is! It is a sweet, sweet Friday. All the sweeter because I'm getting on board a train this morning and uh, we're off to Montreal because it's my sister-in-law's birthday. It is a significant birthday, but she being a woman of a certain age, I don't think she wants me to tell you what <laughs> birthday it is and she is not happy about it. But I'm looking forward to it because it's just going to be a big old French-Canadian crazy-ass weekend. So... You know, I, I try not to take a comedic angle to this because I imagine that this woman has been murdered. But at the same time, I cannot wrap my head around, I have to confess, I cannot wrap my head around how we're now at six people who have been arrested in the disappearance and probable murder of Elnaz Hashtamari. This is the woman who was kidnapped. Okay, I mean, roll it back. She was hit with a frying pan in a parking lot. And then a couple of months later, she was abducted from her home by three guys disguised as police officers. And so, yeah, there's nothing really funny about this. There's just an incredible mystery aspect to it. Like, what's with the frying pan attack? And then what's with the abduction? And the three guys who were uh, disguised as police officers. And what's with the fact that we're now up to six people who have been arrested in connection with their disappearance? Like, I guess this is, um, I sometimes talk about this thing that I call doing the math. And you'll have something that has happened and you'll think, okay, well, do the math. It's, you know, two guys with a gun at a bank, pulling off a bank heist, leaving the bank, getting in a car, whatever. Uh, it all makes sense. Nothing in this particular story makes any amount of sense. You have to wonder, you know, what was, I guess, the jeopardy in, in all of this? What was what it was that um, somebody wanted to endanger this woman, Elnaz Hashtimari, and how did it involve six people? You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. I do believe it is a sweet, sweet Friday. All the sweeter because the Toronto Maple Leafs won last night, and I wasn't watching, so I got no... No analysis here. All I can tell they you They scored is more goals than the other team. They did, yes. But actually, the first game was lopsided against the Leafs, and last night's game was lopsided in favor of the Leafs. So anything could happen. 
And, uh, and as the game progressed, there seemed to be some frustration on the ice by the uh, the Tampa Bay team. Uh, yes. Things got a little chippy. Did they? Uh, to my untrained analysis, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, um, you know, maybe we should find Matt Cause and he can provide some degree of analysis. Um, we have a national strike, right, um, of federal civil servants. But there is a signal from the Canadian Revenue Agency that you should still file your taxes. I think probably, you know, Robert Turner and I were kind of chortling about this a while back and saying, you know, look at that. The federal civil servants won't be available to do your taxes, so maybe you don't have to file them. No, you need to file them. Um, Looking at the analysis here, the Canadian Revenue Agency processes almost 30 million tax returns annually. And believe it or not, so far, 17 million people have already filed their taxes, which means about 13 million taxpayers still need to file their taxes for 2022. I am amongst them. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'm doing after the show today is what I call my annual tabbing summary. And that is just to try to account for, um, well, you know, all the stuff that I've done that might impact on my taxes. And somehow, in spite of the fact that I have, like most of you, um, I have my taxes deducted from my biweekly pay statements, somehow I end up in a dispute on an annual basis with the uh, Canadian Revenue Agency about what it is that I might still owe them. So... You know what, I'm, I'm going to ask Maureen Holloway about this at 6.50 this morning, amongst many other things that we're probably going to have a chance to, to uh, talk about. But uh, Twitter officially discontinued the blue check mark yesterday. And I'm, I'm not absolutely convinced of what the significance of this is, to be perfectly honest. I never applied for it. Um, I tried. At one point, because I thought, well, I had a lot of people saying, like, why aren't you Twitter verified? And I thought, I mean, who really cares? You know, how significant am I in all of this? And then I went online and I tried to get my blue check mark and it asked me for some information. And I have a very short attention span. I just like the, the question number three, I thought, I don't care. So I, I never got a blue check mark. And now everybody's being stripped of their check marks. Well, no, you got to pay for it now. Oh, I know. So, and, and now that's and become. Who will? Who will well, pay for that? I think if you need. I, I understand everybody has issues with what Elon Musk has done with Twitter. Mm-hmm. But it is used by a lot of people. It's become, I mean, an official uh, information source for a lot of institutions and governments and politicians. Um, this is going to seem like not a big deal until. Somebody puts it together a really good parody account and gets something believable flying around that, oh, well, it looks real, and now you can't tell. Perhaps. But I just, I can't think of, like, who's going to pretend to be Cameron Diaz. Um, I just, uh, or, or Justin Trudeau or, or anybody else. I Just because Cameron Diaz and Justin Trudeau are the same. <laughs> Actually, in many respects, they might be. Well, Trudeau is keeping his check mark, but it's a gray check mark because he's a government official. Okay. Does that mean he's paying for it, though? Or no, that, that one is it? just for him. Okay. And the thing is, the average elected official doesn't do their own um, social media anyway. Somebody is, is handling 
their account. But um, it was funny because uh, some guy came after me yesterday. I've been making fun of Elon Musk mostly because, I mean, I don't know why he bought Twitter, to be honest. Like, you're, you are the richest man on earth. Why do you need to buy a social media platform that will not exist 10 years from now and then try to shake it up? But he spent, what, $45 billion to buy Twitter when it was worth in the first place, about $8 billion, if you just judge by revenue stream. And even on paper, like, you know, if you pay $40 billion, $45 billion for something, then I guess it's worth $45 billion. But now it's been evaluated to be about half of what he paid. And so, yeah, I mock Elon Musk. Well, he's sort of that loudmouth at the bar, but he's Kind of smart and has billions of dollars behind him, and he just decided to buy it on a whim. Yeah, but why? Like, it's just so impetuous and and foolish. And, and he buys giant companies the way you buy a golf club. Yeah, well, if I buy a golf club, it's going to be because my game gets better. If I buy that golf club, I think the values of your golf clubs plummet immediately too. <laughs> we used to have a sales guy here who at one time owned 50 putters because he was absolutely convinced that every time he bought a new putter, everything was going to be completely different about his golf game. But back to Elon Musk. And this guy came after me yesterday on Twitter saying, oh, he's a billionaire and you think you're so smart. He just launched a rocket. Yeah, and it blew up. So if ever there was a greater metaphor or allegory or whatever you want to say for Elon Musk, it would have to be that he launched a rocket yesterday and about two minutes in, it blew up. Actually, they had to blow it up. Um, it was uh, sort of a preventative measure. Do we have the audio of that or uh, Robert Turner? We can find that eventually. Um, speaking of very, very wealthy people who are making jackasses of themselves, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell created a challenge where he said, prove to me that I'm wrong about the 2020 election having been a fraud. And a guy actually came up with the math to prove that he was wrong. And Mike Lindell told him to get stuffed. And then he went to an arbitrator and he has won his case. So Mike Lindell is on the hook for $5 million in the, quote, prove Mike wrong election fraud challenge. There are certain things that are highly satisfying, I have to say. Um, we have another case of unmarked graves. It's very important we actually stress this. You know, people say mass graves when it comes to indigenous schools and uh, uh, residential schools, and they're not mass graves. This is not a case of, you know, a whole bunch of people who were murdered and thrown into a pit. This is a case of kids who were kidnapped from their parents, sent to residential schools, died, yes, most frequently from natural causes, but they probably, if they'd stayed with their residential communities, would not have died of those uh, circumstances. And then they were buried in graves, sometimes marked graves that eventually the stones or wooden markers went missing. But I always come back to the same thing. 
He's like, please find me one grave at Upper Canada College. Is there a single student who died uh, under any circumstances at Upper Canada College who was then buried on the premises and not returned to their family? And the answer would be no. So this is a case in British Columbia where at a place called the St. Augustine Residential School, they have now found what they think are 40 unmarked graves of children who died while attending that school. And if I can say, just before we get to traffic here, um, Barbara Kay and I have had this tremendous uh, association for years where she would write a column and quite frequently her son, who was the editor, would send it to me and say, just refute this. And so Barbara Kay and I still have a very convivial relationship. When she's in Toronto, I see her. However, I think it is beyond shameful that she is associated now with a new website that was launched a few weeks ago that is designed to undermine the entire narrative of the uh, Aboriginal Indigenous residential school system. And, you know, I put that up there with climate change denial. It is just an out and out lie. All right. So. Uh, let's move on to a few other stories this morning. Actually, in the five things you need to know, we were talking about the uh, Volkswagen EV battery plant. Adam Rudwanski writing for The Globe and Mail today uh, and says the federal government will provide Volkswagen with up to 13 billion in production subsidies for the new electric vehicle battery plant it plans to build in St. Thomas, Ontario, nearly double the estimated 7 billion cost of construction. And I will leave it to Jerry to sound the alarm over whether or not this is um, something to be grieved. Because when I look at it, I mean, the unfortunate matter is that um, everybody, every jurisdiction, every state is going to try to bid in order to land plants. And so you either have to play the game or you don't. But in this case, $13 billion is, as they would say in Manchester, a lot of dosh. However, if it means that for 40 years, we are going to have thousands of jobs playing, uh, paying really, really good wages with pensions, with all of those people paying taxes, uh, if it means that we are going to have those jobs, that then we're going to have all the ancillary jobs. Because when you have something like um, an auto plant, then, you know, it's, it's everything from the breakfasts that people are eating to the cars that they buy and the houses they own. You know, is it going to be worth it in the long haul? And I will leave it to economists and actuaries to figure out whether or not this is a good buy. Um, however, $13 billion in subsidies is to a company that makes a profit already. It, it does kind of fly up your nose. But how do you get the business if you don't do it? Because if another jurisdiction is willing to do it, and they all are, yeah. it's so... You know, you can take the hard stand and then what, what happens? But then you also get to the point where, and I think it's Missouri, where they just laid on the money to have a plant built. And that plant will never make the amount of money that the state rolled out for them. So that's the math that we've got to do. 
Uh, maybe I'll give Jim Stanford a call today and find out whether or not this actually adds up. I'm pretty sure Jerry's in the prep room with chart paper doing the math right now because uh, he doesn't think it's worth it. No, no, and I and I'm entirely sympathetic that you know I'm I'm not going to honestly go to the wall for the idea that 13 billion dollars that's a and for a company that's already turning a profit you know a, a major international corporation uh, and we're just giving them money because we're begging them to come and work here however on on the defensive side of things robert turner if um, we start building the batteries in Ontario, then we're going to start building the cars in Ontario and we're going to mine the materials that go into the batteries, that go into the cars. And if this leads to a resurgence in manufacturing and strong union jobs, then I would say perhaps it, it in the long run is going to be worth it. I like that there is... Uh, a new corporation. I was reading about this. Steve Pakin was writing a column about this this week, and then I found some more material about it. It's called the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. And their idea is to reassess the genuine history of figures in Canadian history, some of whom, I mean, it has to be said, like Henry Dundas. Okay, so we have a street named after Dundas. We have a lot, we have a city named after Dundas. The guy never actually came to Canada. He's never had anything to do with Canada. There are a lot of places like Bloor, Young. Um, there are a lot of street names and place names that are based on the fact that some very gravelicious people came to Canada and wanted to suck up to people who were still back in the UK, so they named stuff after them. Uh, but still, the greater jeopardy in all of this is that we have place names that some people find objectionable. So the Canadian Institute for Historical Education is going to launch a whole raft of academic research to establish whether or not these people are genuinely objectionable. For example, Dundas. Here's Dundas's problem. Um, Dundas was a parliamentarian in the UK and when the issue of slavery came up, he delayed the whole thing for a few years. Now people say he was an abolitionist because eventually he would vote in favor of abolishing slavery. But when the big test came, he actually did not pass the test. And, you know, we've actually talked to his great, 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 great grandson, the current Earl Dundas. And actually, it's a different title. But anyway, um, we've talked with him and he's tried to defend his ancestor. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, in a time where abolition was an issue, he was on the wrong side of history. Now, does that mean we need to waste some $20 million in renaming Dundas Street. When everyone had to look it up to find out they were offended. Oh, I know, I know. And frankly, um, I forget, but somebody was pointing out that there's somebody else we could just pretend it was named after. There's another Dundas person that we could just say. We should um, just say the street's named after the town and the town's named after the street and call it done. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of Dundas, the town. I have to say, I've biked through it on many an occasion. Um, so anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued that we've established a new history group that is going to 
reevaluate all of these individuals and decide whether or not we need to sweat it. That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.